رادیو و تلویزیون میهن آرشیو برنامه های ما روی وبسایت mihantv.com The events of October 7th was a global punch in the gut for Jews around the world, for moderate Middle Easterners, and for anyone who believes in Western democratic values, and that they are the cornerstone of a more tolerant world. Yet the response, or should I say lack of response, was devastating. But tonight is proof we do not yield, we do not cower, and we will persevere. This is why organizations like ours must lean into the onslaught of hate with an unrelenting energy and sense of urgency. At the Simon Wiesenthal Center, through our awareness, advocacy, and justice initiatives, we will stand up to anti-Semitism wherever and whenever it occurs. And through our education arm and our museums of tolerance, we will educate students and adults to teach the lessons of the Holocaust to promote tolerance. This year alone, over 100,000 middle and senior high school students, of which 90% are not Jewish or white, We'll attend a three-and-a-half-hour guided tour featuring a stand-up-to-hate lesson, and that's just at this museum. This year we'll train over 10,000 adults, mostly police officers, and other law enforcement professionals in our Tools for Tolerance program. This year some 40,000 families will stand up and step up to support Simon Wiesenthal, and the Museum of Tolerance Education programs. And that's so that we can continue to expand our impact. We exist to make sure that the story of the Holocaust and the people who perished and survived must never be forgotten. It is the seminal lesson of what can happen when hate gains control. If we've learned anything these past 115 days, and the recent attacks launched by Iranian proxies against American military in the Middle East, it's that we stand at the precipice, once again, of a world in which those who perpetrate evil have shown their ugly faces. So, what will we do? We speak up, and we do more. That's part of why we're here this evening. Crown Prince Pavlavi will share his perspectives on a range of issues, including the recent attack by Iranian proxy forces that killed three Americans and injured many more. Our Simon Wiesenthal Center Global Advocate, the Honorable Rabbi Cooper and Crown Prince Pavlavi will then discuss the aspirations of the Iranian people to live free from the existing Iranian regime discuss the true attitudes of the Iranian people towards Israel and the implications presented by the looming threat of a nuclear Iran. As the current Iranian regime continues to speak of its clear intention to destroy the world's only Jewish state, Crown Prince 
Bhavavi is one of the most important voices from those within our community who seek a peaceful future between Israel and Iran. I am pleased that this discussion is happening here tonight in this building. And we appreciate the commitment that all of you have made in this audience to be here tonight and join us. This building exists in the belief that we can do better. As Simon Wiesenthal said, freedom is not a gift from heaven. We must fight for it every day. Thank you. As we get started, please join me in welcoming our Master of Ceremonies, George Harunian, activist and longtime friend of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Mr. Burke. Good evening, everyone. First things first, please put them on silent. Don't forget. Uh, I'd like to thank, first of all, my mentor and good friend, uh, Rabbi Abraham Cooper of Simon Wiesenthal Center, Associate Dean at the Simon Wiesenthal Center for welcoming and allowing us to host this historic event. I'd like to thank my friend, Mr. Eli Elish Mareni, President of Iranian American Jewish Federation, along with its board members for working closely with no2antisemitism.org to make this event happen. And I'd like to thank my dear friend, Bijan Khalili, for working with me. Ladies and gentlemen, Tonight at this museum, where we learn and commemorate victims of man's humanity, inhumanity to other men, we also are taught about those in the world who are tolerant and treat others with dignity and respect. I speak here not only as a proud and thankful citizen of the United States, a country which has afforded me and my community the freedom to live in dignity, but also as a byproduct of the common history of two civilizations who for centuries have contributed significantly to mankind in various aspects. <clears throat> as an Iranian and as a Jew, I'm here to remind everyone that at no time in history since the liberation of Jews from the captivity in Babylon by Cyrus the Great has the destiny and future of Iranian people and Jewish people been so intertwined and mutually dependent. What will be the repercussions of the war of Israel against Hamas and Hezbollah and how the Iranian people struggle for freedom and democracy will evolve, and how the Western democracies will deal with the Islamic regime's adventurism and interference, all are parts of a puzzle that many of us present here have clear idea of its solution.
For many years, many have thought naively that the Islamic re regime of Iran will somehow change its behavior through offering various incentives. It is high time for the leaders in the free world to realize that the ultimate solution is not the wishful thinking that the regime will one day change its behavior, but the real solution is change of regime in Iran. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we are here to listen to a guest who is much respected and appreciated by many. He has steadfastly stood up and spoken about the tyranny of the Islamic regime from day one. He has proven his humanity and fairness on many occasions. Yes. Your Excellency, you are respected not only for the nostalgic reason that your grandfather, the late Reza Shah the Great, was the leader who with boldness and care for Iranian people started the era of modernization and advancement and stood up firmly to the Mullah's grip on the Iranian people. It was under his short 16-year rule where much advancement was effected for the Iranian people. It was under his rule that our previous generations in the Iranian Jewish community were given the opportunity to be equal citizens of Iran. You are respected and appreciated, not only because of your late father, the late Mohammad Reza Shah, who was the visionary for taking Iran forward under difficult challenges, and now is being appreciated even more than before after the disastrous takeover by the Islamists. It was... It was under his rule that the Jews of Iran, like most other Iranians, advanced and were able to contribute to Iran in various aspects. He was the one, with open arms, allowed the Iraqi Jewish refugees to escape the tyranny of the Baathist regime and either settle in Iran or leave for other destinations. It was during his reign that the th thousands of Eastern European Jewish refugees fleeing Nazism were allowed to come in and hence the famed Yalde Tehran or Ch Tehran children story. Orphaned Jewish children who stayed in Iran during World War II and later resettled in the Holy Land. You are appreciated and loved for your courageous stance on the friendship and the common destiny of Iran and Israel. In, a in April of last year, you visited the Western Wall in Jerusalem, the holiest place for Jewish people. When you went to Yad Vashem to show your respect to the victims of Holocaust, you showed you are a true, courageous, and visionary leader. You took a stand that so many, so many so-called political activists among the opposition are afraid to do so. 
you stood firm against Jew hatred and anti-Israel propaganda, a cornerstone of the Islamic regime's foreign policy. You showed to the world that Iranians and Jews have a shared history that goes back for over 2,700 years and a common future and a common destiny that is much more dependent on each other than ever before. It is my honor and my privilege to invite the ambassador of friendship and peace, the symbol of tolerance, Shahzadeh Delha, Prince of Hearts, Prince Reza Pahlavi to the podium. Thank you. Simon Wiesenthal Center, No to Antisemitism, and the Museum of Tolerance for their kind invitation. I am glad to be back at the museum for this important conversation. Only days after International Holocaust Memorial Day, I am pleased to be here with leaders of the Jewish community, and particularly our Iranian Jewish compatriots. Just four months removed from the massacre of October 7th, we need not be reminded of the continued bloodlust that astoundingly many still have for the Jewish people. But walking through these halls is a particularly stark reminder of the grave crime perpetrated by a diabolical regime that the West tried to appease. That abysmal came at the cost of six million Jewish lives, untold innocent civilians, and millions of young military personnel. Regrettably, we see that in many circles, the appeasement of bloodthirsty tyrant continues on as a justifiable policy option. As more innocent people continue to lose their lives to the forces of hatred, allow me to speak in particular to the Iranian Jewish community. For more than four decades, this regime has specifically targeted you, your leaders, and your community. Unfortunately, that continues today. I know you are feeling immense and indescribable pain I know you have had friends and loved ones stolen from you. I know this pain because I too have lived similar personal loss and grief. You're looking for answers. You're looking for solace. You're looking for peace. Tonight I am here to remind you that while many in the world turn their backs on the victims of terrorism, and on the Jewish people, the Iranian nation is turning towards you in embrace. 
you see posters with the name of hostages being torn down in cities around the world, remember that Iranians, just as they did after the September 11th attacks, are demonstrating their sympathy and solidarity with the victims and the hostages. When you see the star of David burned, remember that Iranians refuse to desecrate it and instead hold it high alongside our eternal lion and the sound flag. When you see the rape of female prisoners defined as resistance, remember that Iranians know the truth because they too suffered the very same fate in the Islamic Republic's prisons. When you see all of the hatred and it feels like you have nowhere to turn and no place to call home, remember that you are part of the Iranian nation. We, your fellow compatriots, share with you this home. When it feels like you have nowhere to turn, you can always turn home. And know that for anyone who seeks to divide us, Iranians from Iranian, as a secular democratic nation, we shall never permit it. We extend the same welcome to our non-Iranian Jewish friends. Iranians stand with you in this dark moment. Because even though we don't share the same nationality, we have a shared biblical history. We Iranians have not forgotten it. If, you're, if your rallies across the world, you have seen Iranians standing alongside you and even standing up for you, inspired by the legacy of Cyrus the Great. <clears throat> Upon my return from Israel last year, speaking to the Anti-Defamation League, I said that just as Cyrus helped liberate the Jewish people from Babylon and aided them in rebuilding their temple, we Iranians too have a temple. But an evil anti-Iranian regime has occupied it and has taken its people hostage. Iran is our temple. And my friends, we are facing a common enemy. Indeed, this evil regime is waging war on both of our great nations, Iran and Israel. And just like it did to the last diabolical regime the West tried to appease, this feckless policy is leading to more devastation and destruction across our region. From Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza, to Hezbollah in Lebanon, to the Houthis in Yemen, to militias in Syria and Iraq. Our entire region is paying the price for this policy of appeasement. From the refusal to enforce sanctions, to paying ransom for hostage taking, this policy is not weakening the Islamic Republic. It is incentivizing and emboldening it. By now it should be clear to all what has so long been clear to us Iranians. The Islamic Republic is the eye of the octopus 
controlling all of these tentacles. Attempting to appease this Goliath is futile. After 40 years, the time has come to give David a chance. My friends, the people of Iran are the Davids of our time. And they are rising up, not only for their own sake, but for that of the entire Middle East and the entire world. Despite more than four decades under this regime's reign of terror, they are not backing down. Indeed, they are doubling down in their fight for their liberation. The Islamic Republic must go, and the Liberation Army is the millions of Iranians on the streets paying for their freedom and for peace in the region with their lives. Let us ensure that if they are to make the ultimate sacrifice, they achieve their lofty goals. We can do that by supporting them in their battle and not by sitting on the sidelines. In more than four decades, I have not sat on the sidelines waiting for miracles. And for many years, it was a lonely path. Before today's courageous Gen Z of Iran on Iran's streets were even born. But I knew the time would come, and now it has. I knew this time would come because I had more than hope. I had belief. Belief in our nation and belief in our people's resolve. I believe that just as Iranians of all faiths lived peacefully alongside one another before the revolution, only to see their lives shattered and disrupted. Once free, we shall once again be a nation committed to respecting and upholding the fundamental freedoms and rights of all our citizens. In light of such readiness, the world, particularly those whose vital interests depend on fundamental change in Iran, must seize this moment and maximize our chance of success by giving us their full support. I count on you, members of the diaspora, and all friends of Iran, to join us in this campaign for liberation. Thank you. Conversation between Rabbi Cooper and uh, Crown Prince. Uh, I always, through my community activity, search for who is the true Jewish leader. And for me, Rabbi Cooper is the model. His uh, title is the Associate Dean 
of Associate Dean of Simon Wiesenthal Center, Director of Global Social Action. Titles are not enough, of course. Chair of United States Commission on International Freedom of Religion. And Rabbi Cooper has, for almost half a century, been at the forefront of defending human rights and fighting anti-Semitism. I leave it on Rabbi Cooper and the Crown Prince to have the conversation. Excellency, if you'll just allow me, we were just here in this amazing hall in the Peltz Theater on Friday when we had Holocaust survivor bringing her spiritual strength and willing it over to a survivor from the Nova concert massacre. It was an amazing moment of a group solidarity that you felt the room was together. I didn't know that in a matter of a few days we would have the same feeling with, in response to your amazing speech, uh, something which certainly all the members of the audience and everyone in the Jewish community, the second largest one in the United States, but beyond. It's a, a reassuring message of hope. And uh, if I may, I want to go out of order and ask you the following question. Could you explain um, what Islam means to you? <laughs> because what we heard tonight through you is a message of faith and hope that we've been waiting for spiritual leaders to develop, to deliver for three and a half decades. I remember only months after the revolution took place and Khomeini returned to Iran, there were two particular heads of state that I hold in esteem uh, dearly. The late President Sadat of Egypt and the late King Hassan al <laughs> both said that if this is Islam, we are not Muslims. So I suppose Throughout history, we've seen how easily twisting an ideology and perverting it, weaponizing it, politicizing it, could take us down the wrong path. And this is precisely what Khomeini has done, to the point that even the clergy that supposedly is representing the faith that he claimed took steps away from him, calling this an aberration, calling it something that has nothing to do with tenets of religion. To me, religion has always been a private matter between a human being and the way he or she chooses to have faith in the Almighty or whatever. It should not be. It should not be a matter of trying to impose our personal thoughts or ideologies on anyone else. I hope we see the day that on the streets of Iran, like it used to be, by the way, for the most part, Anyone asking a fellow Iranian, what do you believe in? None of my business, none of anybody's business. But the law has to protect this. And this is why we should all understand that the guarantee for religious freedom is based on not just tolerance and not just these value okay. systems of understanding the need for pluralism, but to understand how 
critical it is to respect these rights, something that this regime has undermined in the name of <laughs> religion. That's where the difference is. So as long as we recognize where the difference lies, when we realize that when people are free to worship as they want, but in freedom and under the rule of law, then we would not have any kind of deviation, any kind of uh, twisting things, and that also requires, beyond law, education, awareness, readiness, and most importantly, never forgetting. Because a lot of what happens in our world today, and the reason sometimes history repeats itself, sometimes in the worst possible way, is not forgetting. We cannot afford to have another Holocaust. One time was too many already. And this is the kind of message message that we all recognize that, that we live in a different world. We live in a world of social media. We, we live in a world where as much as messaging becomes critical, our enemies are utilizing it to the max. We need to make sure that not only we respond in kind, but make sure that those who are on the right side of history are much louder than our enemies. This is why we need to be together. This is why we need to be unified. This is why we need to put our entire energy in it. Because that, my friends, is the difference between a horrible world that we can expect or a different world that we can all enjoy in the aftermath. Just a follow-up to that uh, unscripted question, by the way. Um, the day after this regime is gone, you know, there's a famous saying, it's true, you have two Jews, three opinions. <laughs> but I've also met some of the representatives of different opposition groups from Iran. So I think we, Cyrus and these, were kind of similar in many ways. The day after this horrific regime is gone, are you confident with the... Recently, some comments coming from former reformists at this questioning. The problem not be necessarily the reform-minded process, but the root cause of it being the revolution itself. And what do we need to move from here? Politically speaking, I think today's realization puts us on a much better path to go beyond this regime. So I think the conclusion as to whether or not this regime has to go is almost a foregone conclusion. Now we need two things. <coughs> we need to make sure that they have maximum support. You have heard me talk to the world community, political leaders, lawmakers, and I've stressed the importance of a dual-track approach, how important it is to, in fact, implement maximum pressure, and parallel to that, give people the maximum support. These two elements combined will be enough to get rid of this regime domestically, still in the context of a controlled implosion, as opposed to leading to uncertainty and anarchy. But beyond that, it's a question of what happens after the regime collapses. Do we agree as a nation on a process of change that is democratic, that is a due process, that we can in fact prepare the stage for elections of people's representatives. So every aspect of Iran's future, the constitution, the formal regime, is open and clearly debated. Not behind walls. I want to see standard coverage so everyone knows every day what's being said and what's being argued. Because I really believe <coughs> that if Iranians are given the opportunity to ultimately vote with a clear understanding of every angle for the first time in their history, mind you, 
for the first time in their history, have an opportunity to determine their future. I believe that we are there. But as I said, we have to move the, the needle from hope to belief. I'm not sure how much we have the belief. Why is it not quite there? I'll tell you why. Because maybe they're cynical. Maybe they've seen too many times world governments throwing them under the bus. Maybe they're afraid that yet again, if they go to the streets, they end up being executed, they end up being murdered, and still nothing has changed. Now, there are certain things we can't control. And I've always said to my fellow compatriots, we can only depend on ourselves, not counting on anybody else. But it will be so much better. So much less costly to us, humanly and materially, if we had the support from those who are willing to stand with us. We need to form a coalition of the willing to overcome awesome. this regime, who's trying to divide us. And that's why we need to understand the true meaning of solidarity in this critical time. And I think my fellow compatriots back home are far more united, but they need that extra element of support from the diaspora and the rest of the world. That's our job. That's your job here, living outside. Make sure that we can bring the maximum level of support for them. And for what it's worth, legislators have to listen to their constituencies. You have to make the issue of Iran a key issue in the upcoming elections this year. Whether you vote Democrat or Republican, let's take a page out of the Israeli experience. When it comes to Iran, we expect nothing short of bipartisan support for the liberation of Iranians. That was a, a, an outstanding answer, especially the last part where you talked about bipartisanship. So to test you a little bit further, we have uh, VOA, CBS, uh, Fox is up there, maybe a few others, and they really came here for the following question. The United States just lost three of its finest soldiers in an attack obviously planned uh, by the Iranians and carried out by their lackeys. Uh, we're well north of 100 similar incidents now targeting U.S. military in the Middle East. If President Biden hasn't called you yet, and if he does in the next few days, what is your advice to this administration in dealing with the continuing, not just threat, but violence targeting Americans? The wake-up call should be the realization that it is practically appeasement that has been uh, implemented in the last at least a couple of years, if not uh, beyond. When I think of the way they rewarded hostage-taking by uh, the regime by paying them ransom money, when we know that the cold for oil sanctions actually are not being implemented, which means more cash at the regime's hand, which of course is not going to be spent on suffering people in Iran, but on reinforcing their troops and their proxies, what do you expect as a result? What do you expect? The best line that they could come up with was don't. 
Viking? <laughs> Did you hear Churchill say don't? <laughs> Did you hear Ronald Reagan say don't? No, he said tear down that wall. particularly in the Western world, we will have a tough challenge. Let us remind ourselves that what put an end in the Second World War was the strong leadership of Roosevelt in Washington and Churchill in London. What put an end, ultimately, to the Soviet Empire and forced Gorbachev to, in fact, go towards Perestroika and Glasgow was the strong leadership of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. I ask you, vis-a-vis -vis Putin and Xi today, what do we have? That's a question. But all I'm suggesting is that if there's any dependence by decision makers, they have to understand that the world is not going to be silent on that. This is people's power. We have to force the agenda. You have to force the agenda. Don't leave it up to them to decide. They've already proven that they're not making the right decisions. So we have to make the difference. I remember a phrase by President de Gaulle who once said, les circonstances ne sont pas favorables, il faudra donc changer les circonstances. Which means the circumstances are not favorable, we shall therefore have to change the circumstances. Mm. <laughs> That's the game changer. We need to change the circumstances. So I would say exactly this, whether it's Joe Biden or Donald Trump or whoever I end up, that this ought to be the new look. As I said, trying to appease Goliath is no longer terrible. Give David a chance. David are the people of Iran. The people of Iran who have on the ground. Had it not been for some bad implementation, regime change got a bad name for a while. To be the truth, it was like taboo Wording. You couldn't mention the word regime change in Washington for the last two days. But now we have to rethink whether or not, in fact, that's not the ultimate solution. And we're not asking for America to send troops or invade Iran or do any of these kind of things. No, just support the Iranian people. Stop giving money to the regime. Make sure that they can get the Starlinks and others helping out there, and so on. Why don't we ask legislators, as long as the law allows it, to use the frozen assets of the regime that, in fact, is the Iranian people money to, in fact, fund strike funds so we can help our workers. Exactly. We don't American taxpayer or French taxpayers or German taxpayer before our own money could be spent. Well, that's a matter of changing policy. Why not changing the policy that right now prohibits any means of transferring money back home to help a family? Every one of you could sponsor one family in Iran for small amount of money, but give them a chance to, in fact, be able to stand on their feet. 
and take the risk of going on strike. That's the quickest way to paralyze the regime. We don't need to go on the streets and get shot at all the time. We can stay home and refuse to go to work. In three months, the regime will collapse, if not sooner, if that was able to be done. Okay. But instead, it is convenient to brush it around under the rug and kick the can down the road and say, you know what, this is a fait accompli. We have to learn to live with these guys. That's not true. That's not at all true. Because which part of the regime in Iran represents the Iranian people? None. What legitimacy do they have to sit at the negotiation table? None. Whether it's JCPOA or any other negotiation, they don't speak for us. They don't represent us. Never. So that's adding insult to injury. Because you're turning your back on a nation that shared, by the way, the same values that you knew about human rights, about freedom, about liberty. But you still choose to deal with the status quo and help them. We have to make this equation change. And again, I go back to my previous answer. This is where we can make the difference. We can speak up, we can take action, but in unison, I know there will be time for disagreement. That's normal. No, no, we cannot all think the same thing. But let's do it methodically. Let's do it in an arena where there's truly freedom of expression, where we can have open debates, when we can have free media, when we no longer have political prisoners, when we can have political parties that participate in the political process. Then we can have all the debates. But to get there, and in absence of any of this, there's only one solution. We have to do as an Iranians what we need to do, but we need to talk to leaders in the foreign uh, countries that at least claim to be valuing the same values. And rather than negotiating with your sworn enemies, why don't you start helping your true friends? That's how the difference will happen. And that's what we need right now. This is the time. We have to take advantage of this moment because I don't know how long this window will remain open before yet another generation of Iranians mm. are sacrificed for nothing. So uh, one more exit question. Uh, very interesting point that uh, Ex Excellency has made, I think, twice, that Gen Z in Iran sounds like they may be almost like the secret weapon emerging in terms of change. The gap between Gen Z in Iran, and you've been living in the States now for a quarter of a century, you've seen, you've all seen it, and where Gen Z is here in terms of their priorities in the States and really generally turning away from international issues and uh, not knowing very much about the past, including Jewish kids, about the Holocaust or anything. How can we connect? How do we uh, get these two parts of Gen Z to begin to communicate with each other, it sounds like that could be a very positive uh, effort for both sides. Uh, again, uh, using social media as a main tool for information, I'm not saying everything that is out there is necessarily accurate, but for the most part, most of the clips, most of the footage that you get from Iran, Every day in the four corners of Iran. What, what you see on the streets, when citizens that report it one way or the other, they, they post it either on Instagram or whatever other these days. I implore politicians, and for that matter, world media, to pay some attention to that. 
Because if you're only limited to some academic debate in their own echo chamber and so-called uh, panel of experts on Iran who really are detached from that reality, you're not going to get the right read on the streets of Iran. To me, that's the first thing I look at. That's the first indication of where our society is today. What are their daily peace? What are their daily problems, whether it's economic or otherwise? But ultimately, what does it build up to? Where do we find a common slogan or a common, how shall I put it, direction as to we can all finally find the path? And to convert that into a message, not among ourselves only, but to the world community. This is our ask. This is our priority. This is our expectation. And not let the narrative be controlled by people who know too little or are trying to push an agenda that is not truly the will and the ask of the Iranian people. Because we have that problem too. It's not just lack of resolve and determination. There are many elements that could confuse sometimes uh, politicians or legislators, even media. So I think one of the crucial elements is, is a lot of messaging needs to happen. And one of the, I guess, uh, it's not a matter of habit, but when I first started, I remember my years in Cairo, I'm talking at the very beginning, you could hardly get an open line to just dial a number to call, I don't know, Paris or London. Same thing when I was in Morocco. Today on your cell phone, you could be in the middle of the desert with your smartphone and you're connected to all sorts of different platforms and you can communicate instantaneously. It's a different world we live in. It's a tool that despite the regime's attempt to curb, despite trying to force you to be disconnected, or if you need to fit, have big filters of VPNs or what have you. The fact is they recognize the power, the potential that exists for this communication. This is very important because a lot of our expectations, if not translated into policy by means of awareness based on proper communication, will never get there. So there has to be a lot of messaging. I think Gen Z is the best equipped to not only understand that, but to properly use these tools. But I think what I invite here is not just Iranians communicating with each other, but Iranians be able to communicate with friends they have across the world. Solidarity in that sense is very important. South Africa was not liberated just by South Africans. The Poles and solidarity in Poland, the solidarity movement was just to push people, was a lot of uh, support from the international community. So I think that's what I would stress, the importance of where Gen Z is today and what they can do. They're only, limit, they're only limited by means, and by means I mean financial means, and not by imagination. So let's help them, because they will be able, with the proper tools and with proper backing, do so much more. Because everything they've done so far, CISMASA and the, uh, the Women's Life Freedom Movement, They've done it with almost nothing. Imagine what they could do if they actually had some support. That's the game changers. That's what we need to get, at, uh, get to. Thank you. <laughs> Two last questions. You've been amazing with your time and with your openness. Um, you recently visited uh, Israel. So, what did you think you were going to experience, and what actually happened when you spent time in the Holy Land? I was uh, tremendously moved because it's almost like uh, 
you know, often read history, history books and what have you, but to actually be there at the wall and sense 25 centuries earlier what took place and what led to it, uh, that was very enlightening. I, uh, my wife and I really had a, a very uh, deep emotional visit of the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. That should be on everybody's bucket list, by the way. Uh, uh, again, to, to, to know and not to forget uh, is very important. But what, uh, what struck me the most, uh, despite um, the fact that I was very well received by uh, government leaders and uh, uh, many of the organizers there, um, but what really uh, touched me the most was uh, on the day of my departure to fly back from uh, Tel Aviv to, uh, I think it was Paris, I'm not sure. Um, the Gila uh, 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 Galmiel, who was our host and the coordinator, and her husband took us to some cafe right by the, I don't know what you call the, the streets uh, right next to where. It looks like Venice Beach. Volleyball and people jogging and all that. And then uh, average Israeli citizens will walk to us, emotionally hugging us, taking pictures, selfies, you name it. But most important thing, the way they said, oh my God, what a different world it would be once Iran is liberated. That's what we want, to have that relationship with Iran and have people who this for our two countries to have that kind of relationship. This is not some politicians saying it. I'm talking about normal people. You saw the reactions of, of, of Iranians uh, days after the unfortunate uh, uh, attack uh, as the regime was uh, trying to orchestrate uh, a pro-Hamas or pro-Palestinian uh, uh, action. And in, in, in a couple of soccer matches in Iran, uh, I don't think I can repeat these words. Uh, <laughs> I'll, I'll cover my ears. You're going to hear a lot of bleeping on whatever. <laughs> the media will broadcast, but it was a clear answer of people. I'm not talking about people outside of Iran, mind you. It's much easier to do this in Berlin or London or here in Los Angeles. In Iran proper, under the watchful eyes of the regime, openly saying, you know where you can take that flag. <laughs> and at the same time, So many images of Iranians and Jews and Israeli solidarity with our flags, uh, reason, as I said in my speech, in many places. That doesn't happen by coincidence. This is not an orchestrated campaign. This is a genuine sentiment, a pent-up sentiment of a nation that has been so humiliated that when they once were traveling the world, most of the time without a visa, when an Iranian passport was respected, and now how we are perceived, imagine that sentiment. And thank God for the parents who remind their children of what Iran used to be like and what it has become. It did not remain like that. We will make it again a great nation. Imagine an Iran 2.0 with everything that we will rectify because it was not mistake-free, let's be honest, but where we were going, Iran should have been today's Japan of the Middle East. Instead, we have become the North Korea of the Middle East. Do we lack resources? No. Do we lack ingenuity and know-how? 
Aren't there so many Iranians who actually run companies and corporations and hospitals and universities and many parts of the world that could be in Iran instead but couldn't be there right now? Because many of them were forced to flee simply because they were Jewish or Baha'i or politically uh, different minded than this region? We can make it happen again. I ask you once again, don't tell me anymore, we hope. Start telling me we believe. Yes. We believe. I believe, I believe, I believe. So to close, uh, we want to make this an interactive point of reference. If you've been watching, your eyes had to go to that amazing photo of the women who led the last sustained public uh, outcry. So we're going to challenge everyone here in the audience to uh, think about the people they represent, your people. What are you prepared to do for them? I'm going to ask His Excellency to take another look at that visual. And if you can just encapsulate, if she was here right now, what would you promise to her be? You know, I've been talking to uh, families of many of our uh, victims. I won't name names for discretion reasons. But uh, victims during this movement, uh, people who have been incarcerated, imprisoned, executed. Unfortunately, it keeps going on as, as I speak. And beyond a promise is, again, the fact that the price we have to pay to get to where we are today, to understand how critical it is to be proactive as citizens in a nation. We can no longer be as traditionally our country has been for the most part, I believe, sort of uh, passively hoping that a government will be better than another or things will get done, but we don't live in that world anymore. We have to believe that every single citizen and his or her voice is critical in this participation in building a country. You cannot just pass the bar to some authority and say, you get it done, we'll just sit back and, and watch. As Kennedy once said, that's not what the country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. That, that philosophy cannot be more true today. Exactly. Because it's, it, the protests that you see, the price they're willing to pay, means that they're not going to take no for an answer. They will demand transparency, they will demand accountability for the people they put in charge, and that's part of the responsibility, the civic duty of citizens, to be their own watchdogs, to make sure that beyond the structure of government, civil society in Iran thrives, that we have the right NGOs, the right institutions. I want to use an example. For instance, talk about women's, their rights. It doesn't matter how many good laws we have in our system. It doesn't matter how well protected they are under the law. I bet you as we speak right now, at least half of Iranian women don't even know what they're entitled to, to begin with, as their normal rights. Do we have, and should we have in the future, institution that gives them added protection? If a woman is battered in the family by a husband, or a daughter is molested, or, or sexually abused, or anything that forced them to leave the house, do they have a place or a shelter to go to? Can government only do that? 
No, it goes beyond that. We have to learn from other countries and what they are doing to strengthen our society and give all the equipment, the tools, the knowledge, the know-how, and the implementation to do that. But to change that mindset before we have to protect them legally, I think, again, I go to the issue of a cultural change. We need to have a change of culture. Farhang sozi, as we say in Farsi. That's the most critical part. It starts at the nucleus of your homes. It starts in our schools. We even have to start thinking of how to educate teachers so they can then educate our children. I don't know how many lawyers we have today that know anything beyond Islamic law. The minute the regime collapsed, we have to at least go back to the previous laws because while we are in transition, there are elements that will happen that cannot be treated under the current laws. Imagine divorces, uh, inheritance, uh, a lot of things that can happen in transition. There's also the issue of transitional justice. I'm talking to a whole host of people, legal experts to agree those issues, economists to think about what will happen next short term, a roadmap to recovery. This means engaging everyone. It's not just a political exercise. It goes well beyond that. So I think these are the critical issues. And I suppose it's not a promise, it's a commitment to focus on what is most critical, in my view, in my humble opinion, as the nuts and bolts of laying the foundations right. And this is where that messaging is going to give them more understanding of how they can go down that path. We're not going to decide for them, but we have to give them the best means to have the best choice possible so they can make the, the ultimate decision. It's a process, and my first commitment, and I was always promised my entire mission in life is to make sure that I steer this ship out of troubled waters, get them to a safe shore, and lay the groundwork for a democratic transition to our future with their participation, because it is them that they will be able to be involved in the process. And that, I think, is the difference between something we never had in that sense in the, in the past, and that's what we ought to have to start on the right note for our future. Thank you, Excellency. I think we can give an amazing insight as awareness between past and future, not just the snapshot of a situation, but the vision of a true leader. We're grateful you're, you've come back to visit us, and uh, the next time, perhaps, we can meet in Tehran. God bless. Please, Rachel, ladies and gentlemen, we are almost done. I think this uh, event will go down as a historic event, at least the highlight for many of us highlight of our lives. Uh, the closing uh, commentary will be from uh, Mr. Eli Elishmereni, the President of Iranian American Jewish Federation. Thank you very much, Your Excellency. Thank you, George. Your Excellency, hundreds of people here, millions of people around the world, love and admire you. And this is not something new. I remember when you were born. 
two days after Cyrus Day, as a matter of fact, October 31st, and the excitement in the air was palpable. We have a new heir to the Persian throne. 62 years passed, and you made a transformation by visiting Israel, because the way we see you now, so for a long time we were thinking about hope. If we're going to start believing, we believe in you, God bless you, and thank you for being here. Thank you. This is the conclusion of the program. Please wait, don't leave. Our important guest has to leave first with his entourage, and then you can leave. Okay? Thank you.